All right, welcome uh, to my humble abode. Well, since there have been lots of questions in regards to different kinds of media study approaches, I figured, hey, we're all stuck at home, we're all online. Why not use this time to then try again to sum up um, in my own words, well, in different words, uh, compared to when we're in class, to what are those different media theories, what do they mean, and how can we understand them? I try to keep it short and simple, so I hope that works. So, And the first thing that we're going to talk about is um, the ideas of Sean Baudrillard, because Baudrillard just follows us around basically everywhere. When you do media, when you do media studies, right, when you're in the media studies field and you try to analyze text and try to understand things and then you come across postmodernism and whatnot, Sean Baudrillard will be there. Um, may he rest in peace, uh, but his thoughts and his ideas are with us. And I do think for a reason. Uh, again, as with every theory, you don't have to completely agree with it. You don't have to completely disagree with it. You have to come to a conclusion by yourself um, using, well, what you learn, but also, of course, how you understand his discussions. Now, most academics don't want you to blindly just agree. Well, many want you to blindly agree, but the real ones don't want you to blindly agree. They want to be challenged and they want to be discussed. And that's what we do with all the media theories here. So without further ado, let's discuss Sean Baudrillard's um, ideas. So one of the main ideas that are being discussed in, I think, almost every intro to a media studies class, I believe, is um, semiotics and the symbolic ex exchange, right? Symbolics versus semiotics. The symbolic exchange versus the semiotic exchange. So symbolic means you take everything very literal, right? You see symbols, and those symbols, they mean just what you think they mean. You don't have to add anything to it. The semiotic exchange then just means everything has a meaning. Everything is processed, right? So according to Baudrillard, he said, the symbolic exchange, you see what's happening and therefore you know what is true, what is real, is the real, the true form of communication. He said, it's the good way to communicate, it's the sacred way of communicating, it's organic, um, it's raw, it's rather primitive because it's not being artificially enhanced or anything, it's collective, therefore it's real. On the other hand, the semiotic exchange is then where things happen, right? I, I add meaning to Baudrillard's studies, for example. I add my ideas and I'm going to tell them to you right now. So that's kind of semiotic exchange, right? So semiotic means, according to Baudrillard, it's bad, it's profane, it's processed, um, so it's not raw, right? You don't get it from the source, it goes through something else, and this something else, this someone else, adds something to it. That's why it's very contemporary, it's individual, because individuals add something to it, they work with it, and therefore it is simulated. So it's, and that will lead us to the next concept, therefore it's not real. Yeah. Real is just the raw information, the symbolic exchange. When you see it raw without any processing, so to speak. Once someone, some entity, person, news organization, whatever processes the raw 
information, so to speak, the raw symbol, it becomes a semiotic exchange and then it's not real anymore, according to Bordria. Why? Because no one is unbiased, right? We add things or we understand things the way, the way we want them to understand and going to tell the audience what they should think, believe and so on. And so that's why he says the symbolic exchange is the real true good form of communication, even though it's the easy one. Um, and the semiotic exchange is the bad form of communication. However, these days we basically only have semiotic exchanges. So now that we discussed the semiotic and the symbolic exchange and we realized that Baudrillard calls the semiotic exchange simulated, not real, this leads us to the next concept that has been discussed in postmodernism and media studies and so on, hyperreality, right? based on this idea. Meaning what we see on TV, on Instagram, what we hear on Clubhouse, for example, might not be real. Shock horror, I know. <laughs> what you see on reality TV is not real. <gasps> I wish I was better with special effects. So, now that's not a new revelation, we know that. But the thing that he now explains is, even though we know that what we see on IG might not be real. By the way, my cat content is 100% real, just saying. But even though we say, or we know that what we see by possible influencers, the Kardashians, Vatanika, whoever you follow here, right? Um, DJ, what's his name, Matum, <laughs> whoever you follow, we know it's not real, it's fake. It's not their everyday life, right? But for us, it, it kind of, we still buy into it and hence it becomes real. So this simulation becomes reality. So it's not real, real, but for us, it's real. That's hyper-reality. It's like if I just post cool stuff all the time of my travels around the world, for example, even though I'm stuck here, but I only post like cool um, travel pictures. Like, oh my God, he must have such an awesome life. Oh, it's so cool. I want to be a professor at Tamasa too. They must have really cool lives. And yeah, so that's then what would be hyper reality. This hyper reality now that happens everywhere. Yeah. Uh, different TV shows, reality TV shows, um, Instagram influencers, clubhouse room. Oh, holders, runners, I don't know how to call those people, clubhousers. Do those, do those rooms on clubhouse have bouncers? <laughs> Anyways, um, so all those things are hyper-reality because no one is just giving you the raw symbolic communication. It's all semiotic exchange and hence simulated reality, hyper-reality. Okay. Now, this hyper-reality then leads to something that he then later on called hyper-similitude or hyper-truth. Hyper-truth might be easier. Yeah? So this hyper-truth, hyper-similitude is basically um, what then happens afterwards. If hyper-reality equals now reality for us, it becomes reality, then this leads to what we see, this hyper-reality thing becoming the actual truth to us. So what I see on CNN, what they tell me about the coronavirus, for example, becomes truth to me. 
And that's then, even though it's not maybe 100% factual, it's not based on raw information, it's based on the spin of CNN, for example. If they are sponsored by Moderna, what we don't know, like one of the companies that creates COVID vaccines, for example, they might add a certain spin to it. Who knows? Right. So, but this becomes then truth to me and everything from then on, I will base on my perception of this hyper reality media text. Hence, it is hyper truth to me. Whew. Interesting, right? I'm hesitating because I'm just thinking right now. It man, I wish Bordier would would be still alive. He would he would have had fun, like fun, but fun with like analyzing the current media landscape. But now that he's not, we can we can use those concepts and maybe take them a step further and maybe analyze uh, current media landscapes. And of course, that's what we will do. So now, the most famous and most criticized aspect of Bordier's research was the simulacrum. It's usually also the one that is like the most discussed, but also the hardest to, to grasp. Even though it's actually not that difficult. It's just a weird word, I believe. And that's why we struggle with it. But actually, the simulacrum is basically the transition, the transformation from symbolic into the semiotic exchange. So he called it, and I have it on my notes, so I don't, don't mess it up, a journey from reflect, reflecting reality to masking reality, to having no relation to reality whatsoever. So you go from having the symbolic exchange to then reflecting reality, you know, having something to do with it, just adding a few pointers maybe. Then you mask reality, you add more layers to it, uh, according to maybe your personal opinions and so on. And then in the end, maybe it doesn't even reflect reality at all anymore. As an example, The Bachelor reality TV show, that's the example that everybody, every lecturer, every teacher, every professor always uses. So I'm going to do it too. Um, so The Bachelor, right? Reality TV show, apparently with like one single guy and then lots of single ladies who are trying to I know, fight for him. And in the end, they're going to end up together if he picks one of those ladies and then they end up happily ever after. <coughs> Never works. Uh, so this is should be reflect reality, two single people, right? But then you put them in like different settings and like different circumstances and try to influence the way they behave, for example, yeah, with challenges and whatnot. Then you stir the drama, Right, the producers start a drama, then they say, Hey, he actually, while he told contestant A that he really likes her, at the same night he made out with, with contestant B. They're stirring the drama, so then they're masking more of the reality until this show does not reflect reality at all anymore. They're in a, in a big mansion, um, it's all like overly dra dramatized, it's like not relatable at all. Um, but still, we take it as reality for whatever reason yeah so this is what he's talking about and then this transformation from it could be something real into changing it adding more layers adding more layers masking reality because it's clearly not real anymore um, to reflecting something that is clearly scripted and made up but still perceived by the audience as Oh, that's a reality TV show. So hmm, I wonder who he picks in the end. Yeah, so this is this whole transformative process. This is the simulacrum. 
Easy, right? One of my favorite quotes by Baudrillard is actually, and again, uh, let me read it so I don't mess it up. Uh, so we live sheltered by science in the deserts of the real. I liked it very much. So he says, we live in a desert of the real, meaning we're not in the re living in reality. We're sheltered by science. Why? Because the science that we choose to interpret and to follow and to believe are obviously the science that we agree with, right? So we are sheltered from reality because we only follow, consume media that kind of reflects the points that we agree with anyways. I think that's a very powerful quote, by the way, and it very much also explains how people consume media, why people consume media. So what we call reality basically is just a simulacrum, right? So we live in the simulacrum. I mean, when we watch the news, right, you see the world, how it's interpreted by the news channel, by the news anchor, whoever you are, you're watching or you're following, whoever you listen to on Clubhouse, this person tells you or those people in the, in the room, they share their opinions and we just believe them. Yeah. Or maybe we don't believe them, but it's in, based on our the science that we believe in. All right. So we live in the desert of the real. And that's one of the key messages of Baudrillard's, um, Baudrillard's studies. What also goes along with what we discussed before, um, the hyper truth, right? Um, Baudrillard says um, this whole hyper reality thing, it leads to the destruction of the real or the devastation of the real. So what he means by this is, he says, um, because we believe the hyper-reality and we see, for example, he used the Grand Canyon as an example. He said, we see the pictures of the Grand Canyon. Yeah, We see Google Earth Grand Canyon, for example. So then if you go to the real Grand Canyon, it's not that wow anymore because you've seen it before, right? So this hyper-reality thing that is happening um, so the things are being the, the shown over and over again, how awesome they are. And you see the Grand Canyon in movies, for example, and of course in movies, it's not real. It's like made look even more impressive than it actually is, right? So that if you would see the real one, you'd be like, hmm. It's like, and I have to admit it happened to me. Uh, back before COVID hit, I was traveling to Paris for the first time in my life. Even though I'm from Europe, never been to France, probably because I'm German and, you know, France, Germany. So I went to visit a friend in Paris. So I actually went to the Eiffel Tower for the first time in, in my life. And I went to the Eiffel Tower and I thought, huh, that's not that cool. It looks nicer on the pictures. <laughs> and that's exactly what he's talking about, right? So the devastation of the real, it's like thanks to hyper-reality, uh, Thanks, Obama. No, thanks, hyper-reality. Um, the reality isn't that great anymore. And if you rather see hyper-reality, um, you know, we rather believe the hyper-truth because it's cooler. It looks better on pictures. I had to add lots of filters to my, to my picture of the Eiffel Tower to make it look cool. Another thing that Baudria explained and that I think is like very interesting, especially these days, is um, he says... Television encourages indifference, distance, and apathy. It anesthetizes the imagination. And I think that's even worse, worse, German accent, sorry. It's even worse with the internet. What he means by this, he's like, we know, we know McLuhan. McLuhan said 
um, it's a global village, right? Um, medium is a message, but in this case, the, the global village. So we all communicate with each other, even though we are far apart. Um, it feels like a village because it can know everything that's going on thanks to electronic media, like then TV, but now internet even more so, of course. Now, um, Bordria says, yeah, well, Marshall, wait a second. I think it leads to apathy. Why? So one example is if something bad happens, and you're in the West, something bad happens in China, for example, COVID-19, we don't really care about it yeah, until it really hits home. Even though we can see the news, we can read how many people have it and how devastating it is. We're like, yeah, okay, it's over there in China, it's in Asia, whatever, we don't really care, right? Until it really hits home. In this case, the US here in Thailand, we cared way before, way sooner, of course. But also the other way around. If something like this would happen in the US first, here in Asia, we would be like, yeah, okay, it's over there. Let's just wait. It's not never going to come here. It's too hot here. It's not going to come over here, right? So still very interesting, right? Even though we see everything that's happening, we can communicate. This is still a thing, like the distance. Distance is still still a thing. Also, what he meant by this um, is he, you see it over and over and over and over again. This leads to what he called the delirious event of the non-spectacle, meaning... If you, and he used the Gulf War as an example, if you see war on TV, on the internet, over and over and over again, like every time the news show you like bombers flying, uh, people being shot at and so on, at some point, you're getting numb to it. You're like, okay, I've seen it for the past six months, every day. Okay, whatever, like sap or like just click away or whatever, right? So that's what he means by this as well. So. This whole thing of us being exposed to media over and over and over again and all the time eventually leads to the delirious spectacle of the non-event. That's how he called it. The delirious spectacle of the non-event, meaning for us, then maybe the war is nothing more than just another movie or a computer game. Yeah, you know, it's like, did it really happen? If you if you don't care, did it happen if you don't care? I mean, of course it happened, right? But it happened for us. Hmm. It's, I know it's a weird question to ask, right? But if I don't really pay attention and I don't, I just see it like as a cyclone, like, yeah, whatever, war, I've seen it before, not impressive. Huh. So, yeah, that, that's then how media, also the semiotic exchange, ruins the symbolic exchange. So if you would only see, the pictures, you would be devastated, like, oh, my God. But then, yeah, if you on, on Fox, for example, they showed the bombing then uh, back then during the Gulf, Gulf War, they showed the bombing and played like, I don't know, American Anthem or whatever, um, or whatever, like music that uplifts you or whatnot. Um, yeah, that's just crazy. And that, this just changes the whole perception. And that's what he meant by the delirious spectacle of the non-event. So he then said... Yeah, so the, the feelings that you have when watching the news are no different to the feelings you have when you watch a soap opera. And that's the problem, right? Um, so if you watch a soap opera or a romantic movie or whatever, you, you have just kind of the, the certain feelings because that's what the movie tries to do with you. But that's exactly what the news are doing now too. And that's where he goes um, or comes from when he says like the delirious uh, spectacle of the non-event. Hmm. So now that's like, Sean Baudrillard in 20 minutes. <laughs> um, of course, that doesn't do him any justice and we should talk about him for, for days. Um, but of course, now my main question would be, what do you think about the, A, those ideas of Baudrillard 
Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you see this still happening? Because, I mean, the, the theories he came up with, right, when he talked about television and the beginning of the internet, he died in 2007, I believe. So he, he wasn't really around for the whole explosion of social media, for example. What do you think Baudrillard would say about TikTok and Clubhouse these days? And I'm only halfway joking. So... Let me know what you think. Shout out uh, in whatever form possible and stay tuned for the next episode with, then again, 20 minutes of who do you want to see next? Marshall McLuhan? Dominic Srinati? Let me know. See you soon. <laughs>